Amen. Good morning. Well, my name is Matt, and I'm another one of the pastors here. Tom is a senior pastor. He's usually the preacher. So if you're new and you came to see him, ha! You have to come back next week. You get me today. So uh, we are continuing in our study of the book of Luke. As, uh, um, and uh, if, you, if you go to the church regularly, you know that we do that within personal worship throughout the week. We study that passage every day. And uh, as I was studying that passage this week, I was reminded um, as I entered into that story, I was reminded of a story in my own life that I wanted, to t- I wanted to not just tell you about it, but I wanted to bring you with me. I wanted to bring you with me into this story because I think it really illustrates just the feeling that Jesus must have had in this, in this passage that we read this week. So I want you to go back with me in time all the way, all the way, all the way back to 1996. I was a youth pastor and a uh, um, I took a group of kids on a mission trip to West Virginia to work with some very poor people in the Appalachian Mountains. And I want you to come back with me. I want you to come back to 1996 to a little tiny town of North Fork, West Virginia in the middle of the summer, sweltering hot, 1996, population 426. And I want you to meet a friend of mine. Uh, His name was Mark. He was a middle school boy, and Mark lived sort of in his own universe, as middle school boys are wont to do, uh, but he was a good kid, and Mark was um, actually one of um, 13 kids that were with us in a van. One van. Now, let, me, let, me, let me clarify that for you. I said one van, 13 middle school kids, me and another youth volunteer, a faithful, loyal youth volunteer named Trey Gordon, and I were in one van from which, in which we had driven from Newport Ritchie, Florida to West Virginia, 17 hours drive time with 13 middle school boys and girls in the dead of summer, record heat wave. Is the picture coming together for you now? Okay. So all these 13 boys and girls have with them little sound music devices. They used to call them Walkmen back then. And they had tapes, cassette tapes. And, or if you were really fancy, you had a disc man and it has CDs. But they all had them and they all made the same noise they did now. They do now, that little high-pitched sound that's different, but it's all the same. So 13 of those kids crammed in one van, smelly, hot, just horrible. 13 of those kids, me and Trey, packing out the van. There were supposed to be two vans, by the way. Two vans for those 13 kids to divide into a reasonable amount of people. And the other two volunteers uh, bailed at the last minute. But it was too late. We'd raised all the money. We were going to West Virginia. So we cram in the van. We drive 17 hours drive time. We, we get to West Virginia. We are, we are there for, uh, we're supposed to be there for a week. And we're about four days into this trip in that same stinky, smelly, sweaty van with these same kids that have music and they have mouths that are say preposterous loud things and they have bodies that can produce just horrible juvenile things and they're all in the van and it's day four it's the end of day four we've been sleeping in an abandoned high school i'm not making this up on the floor it's filthy dirty we found out later two weeks before it they had shot a movie with richard Gere, and they had dirtied it on purpose and never cleaned it up so we just thought so we cleaned it up for richard Gere. we cleaned up his movie set for him as part of our mission trip, no air conditioning in this school, concrete floors, day four, end of the day, hot, exhausted, tired, crammed back in the van, 
on our way to the one oasis, the one oasis that this little tiny town had to offer, a 7-Eleven. <laughs> so I'm here, and Mark's here, Trey's right there, and everybody's back in the back. Trey and I are just, we are at the end of our rope, man. We are hanging by a thread. We are just trying not to kill ourselves and others. And Trey mentions in passing an old story that is actually a gospel metaphor. It's probably rooted in truth somewhere, but it was the story of, of a bridge tender and his beloved young one and only son. Maybe you've heard this story. And Trey mentioned it in passing, and then it happened. A moment. And Mark, the middle school boy, snapped for just a moment out of his reality coma, and he asked a legitimate question as though he'd been listening. He said, what's that story? Would you tell me the story? So Trey and I looked at each other, and we seized the moment, and I gathered all of the energy I had left in me to tell the most impassioned version of the story ever told. I looked at Mark, and I said, well, Mark, you see, there was this bridge tender, and he had a beloved young son. He loved more than anything in the world, anyone in the world. And, and every day, his young son would come to work with him, and he, he would play while his father worked in the, in the bridge tower. And it was a drawbridge for a, a train, so it was always up till the train came. And, and one day, off in the distance, he saw that the train was coming, and he did what he always did. He, he, he looked around to find his son and have him come in the tower to be in a safe spot. But he realized that his son, he couldn't see. He wasn't where he usually was. And he looked a little farther and he realized to his horror that his son had climbed down into the gears of the drawbridge and was playing in the gears. And he flung the window of the tower open and he yelled out to his son, but by this time the train was getting closer and loud. And he knew in that moment that his son could not possibly hear his shouts. And he also had a horrible realization in that moment that he could not get to his son to pull him from the gears and also lower the bridge in time to save the hundreds of people on this train. So he was left with this horrible decision. Save his son or save the strangers. And so in that horrible moment, the father did the only thing he could do and he pulled the lever and he sacrificed his one and only beloved son so that all those people would live. And I looked at Mark and I said, Mark, that's it. That's what God has done for you if you'll trust in him. He's given his one and only beloved son. He's sacrificed him for you. If you will just trust in him because he loves you that much. And Mark paused. And out of the silence, he said, 7-Eleven! Woo! And he just got out of the van <laughs> and went in the 7-Eleven. And Trey and I just stood there, sat there in the van, just stunned, just... That was the last middle school mission trip I ever voluntarily led in my... <laughs> In my ministry, and I tell that story because I believe that in this moment, in this story, in Jesus' journey, 
That's exactly how he felt, but maybe like times infinity. As he approached uh, the crowds of people who had been following him, and even his closest, even the 12 apostles who had been with him and, and seen him perform miracles, and in fact just performed one with him, the ones that he had, he had cast out demons in front of them and then empowered them to cast demons out themselves, and they just didn't get it. Two different roads these people were on. You see, Jesus was on a road of redemption. Determined, principled, purposeful, visionary, strategic. He knew its beginning. He knew its end. He knew what would come in the middle. And what he wanted more than anything was for these people to understand that and get on that road with him. Because why? Because he was the bridge tender. He did know what had to be done. He did know that they would that they were on a road to death, but for his intervention. And they were still doing this. Two different roads. The road to redemption and the long, slow, plodding road to the grave. And that was what was not just in Jesus' theological mind, it was what was in his soul. And so with that in mind, let's enter into this story with him. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Remember, he was dead, by the way. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, in that moment, had a temporary brief relief from his reality coma. He got it right. Peter answered, The Christ of God. So Peter gets that Jesus is the Messiah. He gets that. But there were all these cultural expectations about what that meant. He gets that Jesus is the culmination of something. He knows he's greater than Elijah. Okay, Remember, Elijah was the messianic prophet. He was the one who would, who would come back to usher in the prophets. So it's like John the, ba- I mean, the Messiah. So like John the Baptist was like an Elijah, right? So Elijah was the one who would come to do that. So, but, so Peter somehow understood he was greater than Elijah. He was greater than John the Baptist, but he did not yet fully comprehend what it meant that he was the Christ of God, the Redeemer. So then Jesus goes on, and he foretells his death, which was not in their program. And he says this in verse 21, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, that doesn't make any sense, and be killed? And on the third day be raised, Jesus says. Remember, Jesus, the way of life, the road to redemption, the one who is determined and purposeful and has the plan and knows that it will succeed because he and he alone has the power to make it succeed, but to them it makes no sense whatsoever. What? What do you mean that the scribes and the Pharisees will reject you? They should be the ones getting behind you. What do you mean you'll be killed? How can you be killed and bring redemption? And what is this business about being raised again on the third day? 
So Jesus, knowing that the disciples still didn't get what the Messiah was all about, told them. He told them about a cross. Now they knew what a cross was, but they didn't know what it would be for. Verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus takes them another step onto this road of redemption. And he tries to help them understand that this way of death in which they've been living, this this hopeless cycle of death and decay and violence is not going to change anything. Any more than changing one dictator will change anything in a, in a, in a, in a country in South America, will, will change anything. It'll just bring in another di- dictator. Maybe he's worth. And Jesus says this. He says, if you would follow after me, if you want to get behind this Messiah, to believe in me is to take up your cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. When I was in seventh grade, my poor father spent two hours trying to help me understand what that meant. I was in seventh grade. I was like my friend Mark. I never could understand it. It took me forever to get my mind around it, but it became clear to me this week, uh, not this week, it became clear to me a long time ago, but it was, (laughs) it became clear to me this week when I became a Christian. Um, What a moving passage this was. Wow. Powerful, Tom. Thanks. I am now legitimately a pastor. I understood it long ago, but this week somebody in my community group articulated very well the essence of this and what Jesus was saying. If there is a God and he created all things and he created you, not just you, but you as the crown of his creation, everything made after its own kind, it says in the creation story, but man and woman I will make after my image. What does that mean? It means yourself is derived from him. There is no you without him. There is no essence of you without the essence of God in you. And the pursuit of you is a fool's errand apart from the pursuit of God. So, what benefit is it to someone who chases and after and gains the whole world but loses his soul, loses his self, loses his essence, which is me? Jesus is saying, if you want to live, there is only one life giver. Me, the vine, you, the branch. You cannot cut yourself off from me and live for you because you're a shadow. You're dust. 
apart from me. So you must live with me and for me and out of me. And he tells them to to do what he then would do. Take up my cross and follow me. Take up your cross daily. What does that mean? Sounds good. Sounds profound. The temptation is to think that it means do what Jesus did, and it does mean that. It means don't do what He didn't do, and it does mean that. But it means much, 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 much more than that because Jesus didn't come to found a religion or to clean one up. Jesus came to claim His throne and to restore you as a child of the King. He didn't come to fix you. He came to remake you. He didn't, came to, he didn't come to give you some adjustments or help you build a ladder of works and wisdom to Him. Taking up your cross is a call to exchange one way of life for another. To exchange it. One set of presuppositions about the world and how things work. One set of dreams. One set of goals for another. So taking up your cross is much more than a list of things. It is a state of being. And it begins with two fundamental things. The first is humility. The first thing that he calls the disciples to And by the way, after this little speech later in the passage, they actually have a debate about who's the greatest among them. (laughs) 7-Eleven. It begins with humility. Here's a realization for me as a Christian. I I don't dwell in my shame. I had this great college, uh, seminary uh, psychology professor. He uh, He said, guilt is good. Guilt says you're not good, says you need to change, it motivates you. Shame is bad. Shame says you're no good. And that's a lie. You're made in the image of God. The devil slices off that tea and says you're no good because you're not good. And Jesus says because you're not good, I will make you good. I will save your soul. You will trust in me. Humility comes first though. And it looks like this. I always remember, I am not innocent. I am forgiven. When I encounter another human being, when I develop an opinion or an attitude about someone else and their motivations and the way they do things, I am not innocent. I am forgiven. I am blessed. I am fortunate. I am a receiver of grace, which means something I cannot earn. Begins with humility. I am not innocent. I am forgiven. Jesus substituted His righteousness for me. He didn't applaud my righteousness. When God sees me, He doesn't see me. If He saw me, He'd see filth. He sees Jesus because Jesus replaced my dirty soul. And He made me clean. So taking up my Christ daily means walking in humility daily as a forgiven person. 
The second thing is that it manifests itself as a state of being in love. Now that sounds good, Hallmark cards, all that, wonderful, nice, love is kind, love is patient, etc. But let me tell you the kind of love that taking up your cross means. I want you to think about Jesus taking up his cross and the kind of love that required. It had nothing to do with candlelit dinners and roses. It was a volitional choice that was born of a state of being that Jesus had. And this right here is the thing that trips us up, us Christians, more than anything else. It's the thing that makes the watching world blaspheme God more than anything else. It's our struggle with this thing right here. Walking around in this life, not only humble, but with a, an undercurrent in me of goodwill toward everybody I encounter. Everybody. Even, and maybe especially, my enemies. Peter said that, you know. He said, you know, God is patient. He doesn't desire anyone to perish, but for everyone to reach repentance. That's the God of the universe who made us, and then we gave him the cosmic finger, turned our back on him, and decided to be God for ourselves. That's the God who's patient. And desires no one to, that no one perish, but that all would reach repentance. It's that undercurrent of goodwill flowing from the love and character of God that takes Jesus, and when he is hanging on a cross, cries out to the judge and begs leniency on the people who nailed him there. That's love. That's the love of Christ. That's the love of the cross. That's the love of a Christian. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, it begins with humility and it manifests itself in that love, that undercurrent of goodwill toward everyone in the room, even in some sense, especially your enemies. A desire to see everyone redeemed. A heart that gets bigger when you're wronged, not harder and smaller. Boy, that's a tough one. So not only does taking up your cross, is it a state of being, it's also a way of living, and more than just a list of rules. The first part of that is this, it's a commitment to purity. Now I say that, and immediately, oh, there goes the Christians again, talking about being goody-two-shoes, and don't drink, and don't cuss, and don't smoke, and don't hang out with the people who do, and all that kind of thing. Well, that's not what God means at, it, at his root when he's talking about purity. Let me, let me tell you why God says you need to be pure, okay? You need to follow after my laws, which are a reflection of my character. Because, he says, remember, you're on a road of death. You're on a journey of death. I'm talking about the journey of life for which you were made. And when you are not pure, you are being imprisoned by that road of death. And all of its trappings, all the criminals that wait in the shadows. So being pure is staying clear of the effects of the broken world that enslave you. Don't touch the hot stove. Why? Because I'm a rule guy? Because I don't want you to burn yourself. Staying pure is staying clear of the effects of the, bro- of, uh, of the broken world. So let's be a little practical about that, though, okay? The way of the world, the way of death, is to lie, cheat, steal, and, and, cheat, uh, lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead. 
Lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead. We call them white lies, whatever. God says don't do it. It's part of, it. It's part of the world's brokenness. It's the way of death. In the end, it will get you nowhere. In fact, in the end, it may get you in trouble. Mark Twain, I think, said that. He, he said, the problem with lying is I have to remember what I said. The way of the world says, lie, cheat, steal to get ahead. God says, don't do it. It's not worth it. Whatever you think you're going to get out of that, it's not worth the consequence in the, in the way of death. Second thing, the way of the world says your relationships, your friendships, your marriage, your coworkers, the people in your life are for your fulfillment. They're to make you happy. They're for you to consume. Your sexual relationships, all those things are for you. And therefore, by implication, when they are no longer of use for those things, discard them. God says, don't do that. That's not the way you were made. That's not the way of life. That's part of the world's brokenness. It will imprison you. It is the way of death. Another one, the way of the world says, put your faith in anything but God. Anything. Put your faith in anything but God. Power, fame, success, money, material things, sex, people. Anything but God. God says that is a fool's errand, as I said. You're attaching yourself to things that will rust and fade away. That's the way of death. Attach yourself to things that are dying is the way of death. Stay pure. Last one. The way of the world. And this one, this one came out of my day two of my personal worship, which is when you have to be honest with God about yourself. And I hate that day. <laughs> the way of the world is to be intoxicated with people's failures and humiliations. The way of the world is to be intoxicated with people's failures and humiliations, to gawk at reality shows and news channels and tabloids that almost celebrate human depravity instead of grieving over it and offering solutions and grace and humility and love. I have this sinful preoccupation with the negative things in this world, with the destruction of people. I have to watch the car accident to see if there's blood. I have to see if the plane will crash when it lands. I have to Facebook my friends and judge other people and my opinions about that the people they don't know. And then my friends have to respond to me and agree with me even though they don't know the other person. I do all these things because I'm somehow preoccupied in this way of death. I'm fascinated with the destruction of people and I cultivate this rich soil of gossip and vitriol and venom and I become fearful of things I should not fear. I become self-righteous and judgmental and I lose my humility. It is a, it is a prison. It is a prison. It is slavery and it is the way of the world and God says, cut it loose. Turn it off. Stay pure. So not only does God call us to a commitment to purity as we take up our cross, the second thing he calls us to is a commitment to redemptive activity. A commitment to redemptive activity. Now I call it that for a reason. Uh, Translate it, good works. He calls us to do good things. He calls us to help little old ladies across the street and do all those nice things and help volunteer at Hope South Florida and four kids and and all the wonderful things that people do. But he doesn't call us to do them because they are the the things that we earn, the merit badges that we get. 
to, to earn our favor. No, that's not it at all. He says the cross is about the way of life, not the way of death. And when you're in the way of life, you're about redemption. So when you do a good thing, you're not just doing it for the sake of the thing. You're doing it because it's redeeming something. You're doing it. It's not about you. It's not about you feeling gratified. It's not about you being fulfilled. It's not about you earning God's favor. You're not thinking about you. You're engaged in the redemptive activity of someone else. That's what Jesus did, who though he was very nature God, did not consider himself equality with God, something to be grasped, but instead took the form of a servant. That's what it means to take up your cross. Commitment to redemptive activity. Engaging in things that lift up. Love God and love people. Make it your mission to seek out need and meet it. Did you hear that? Make it your mission in life to seek out need and meet it. That means when you get up in the morning, get better and better at waking up thinking about someone or something else that you can contribute to the redemption of. I, I heard a pastor say this a while back. It was great. He said, you know, the Western proclivity as we get older is to accumulate more, to use more resources, and to influence less. The farther along I go, the more successful I become, the more rewards I gain. I gather them to myself. I create security. I isolate. And I, I become more and more about me and I consume more and more for me. And I become more and more blind to the world. That's the way of death. You will die in that pile of stuff. In that pile of fame and prestige and security, whatever it was you thought you had. And Jesus says, no, 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 the way of life is to do the opposite. The older you get, the wiser you get, the more mature you get, the less you need, the less you consume, the more invisible you are to yourself, and the broader your sphere of influence becomes, the greater your capacity to bring redemption. That's the way of the cross. Last thing, not only taking up your cross, is taking up your cross... um, as a way of living a commitment to purity and a commitment to redemptive activity, it is a commitment to self-sacrifice. Now, we've talked a little bit about that, but let me say it real simply for you and for me. It is a willingness to set yourself aside. Notice I didn't say a pursuit of suffering. Remember Jesus said in the garden, hey, Lord, if there's any way that we can do this a different way, please let, it, let that happen. This isn't a pursuit of suffering. Jesus isn't impressed because you suffer. He doesn't want you to flog yourself, you know, and that kind of thing. But what he says is be willing to set yourself aside even if it costs you, even if you have to suffer. As Jesus has been the suffering Messiah, we must be prepared to suffer after him in pursuit of his work. To follow Jesus is to carry your cross along with him. That's what it means to take up your cross. So I am so glad that personal worship does not end on day two being honest with yourself. Because I would be depressed all the time. Fortunately, in this rhythm of grace, we begin by seeing God the Messiah. But then, and then when we're honest with ourselves, as His light sheds, shines on us, we're honest with, ourself, with, with Him about ourselves, the next thing that happens is that He then in turn gives us the assurance of our salvation. Because it's based on His work and not on ours. So we, we continue 
with that hope in verse 28. And this is crazy and weird, but just go with it. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with, uh, with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Those were like the big three apostles. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Remember that? Remember Elijah? Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Hold on to that word departure. We're going to come back to that. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. I think that means he he was just being stupid. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen, my chosen one. Listen to him. Divine authority, divine authorization, just like when he was baptized. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything that they had seen. Do you think, I think I know why. I think they were terrified. We think that they were all cool with supernatural crazy things back then and we're all modernists now and that would freak us out. No, no, no. I think that was just as crazy and freaky to them as it is to you and me because I think it was less about supernatural and more about entering into the presence of holiness. And I don't think they saw prophets come back from the grave every day. This is called the transfiguration and it's when Jesus gives them a preview. God comes down and authorizes Jesus as the Messiah and and as divine authority Um, And he does that partially by putting him with Moses and Elijah, okay? Elijah, as I said, was the forerunning prophet. He was the one who was going to bring in the the Messiah. Who was Moses, though? Who was Moses? This is back to that word departure. And this is what's so beautiful about what happens here. And this should speak to you. This should give you hope. This is really what this is all about. That word departure, he says they talked about uh, his time in Jerusalem and his departure to come. You're talking about Jesus going to Jerusalem to be crucified and risen from the dead, right? Well, that word departure is much better translated exodus. Moses. In Egypt, the leader of God's people called to liberate them from slavery and send them to take them to the promised land. By how? By shedding the blood of an unblemished lamb and painting it over the doorposts of all who would trust in him. And then the exodus from slavery to freedom. And so, when Peter and James and John overheard this conversation, they didn't hear, and Jesus said he was going to go to Jerusalem and then leave. They heard him say, I will go to Jerusalem and then the Exodus. And what they would come to see is that Jesus, the unblemished lamb, the perfect lamb, the one that all those other poor lambs foreshadowed, would be the perfect sacrifice and his blood would pay the price for the sins of all who would trust in him. And then he would open the curtain from the land of slavery, and through it they would walk into the land of promise, the land of life, 
the journey of redemption. This was what it meant to take up your cross and walk with Jesus. It meant that you knew that that cross on your shoulder was heavy and burdensome and exhausting and it represented indignity and sacrifice, but it was a tool to get to an end when that cross would be empty. And that tomb would be empty. And that tomb is not just Jesus' tomb, it's your tomb that you would see as empty and you would see through to the promised land where there would be no more suffering suffering and no more tears. Redemption. So there's a lot more to talk about in this story. But I want to close with this. Jesus comes down off of that mountain and He heals a boy of an unclean spirit. And this is what I want you and me to think about as we leave here today and we go back into the world thinking about what we do with this. So he comes down off the mountain. And I actually got several questions about this this week because if you remember this part of the story, he comes down off the mountain with the disciples and there's a big crowd of people there and a man comes up frantic and he says, says, teacher. He doesn't say master. He doesn't call him Messiah. He says, teacher. And he inquires about what to do because his son has a demon. His little, his little boy has a demon. The demon is just wreaking havoc on him and, and crushing him, crushing his bones, it says. And he just won't let him go. And your disciples couldn't cast him out. And nobody could cast him out. Teacher, what can you do? And then Jesus laments. He kind of cries out. And he says, oh, you, 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 uh, twisted genera- you, you faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be here to bear with you? And then he says, bring your son here, and he casts out the demon like that. Now, who was he mad at? That was the qu- inquiries that, that I got some this week. Well, who was he mad at? That, that father seemed like he was doing the right thing. He came to the, came to the Savior. You know, was he mad at the father for, for that? Was he, was he mad at the disciples because they couldn't cast out the demon? What was it? Well, I think it was yes, all the above. Let me tell you what he was mad at. He was mad at the estate of his creation. He was discouraged. He was frustrated because they were just stuck in this way of death and it didn't even occur to them how messed up this whole thing was. It didn't even occur to them that not only could the apostles not cast out the demon, even though he had just empowered them to do that, not could, no one in the crowd could, even though they'd been following him around and, and, and watching him. No, not even the father of the son had picked up on how to do this, and not even the son could resist the demon. But even all that's missing the point. There was a demon. There was an evil being, an evil presence that was forcing its way into the heart and soul and mind of the crown of God's creation, one of His created people. And they had just accepted that. They had just accepted that evil was running rampant. And they were looking to see if maybe somebody could somehow salve the pain just a little bit on this way of death, on this road to death. So here's the thing. The trouble with this world, and it's always been true, but it's certainly true today, is that we get lost in it. We accept the corruption and the decay and all of that brokenness. 
We just can't see how broken and distorted and corrupt it is because it's just, it's just life to us. It's like abused spouse syndrome. You won't move out of the house because there's just something that's just, it's just safe or comfortable. But it's so wrong. So I want you to put yourself in this seat in your mind. Mark's seat, the 7-Eleven seat. And what I know happened to Mark is that when he was sitting in this seat, and Mark's a great kid, by the way, he was the one who did an impression of me when I left that church eventually. And uh, it was a lot like Matt Foley, motivational speaker. Um, and it was brilliant. And he was a Christian. But what happened to Mark is he sat in that seat. And as we were talking, he was probably interested at first, but then he saw the 7-Eleven. And as we got closer and pulled up, he could see through the window and he could see the Twizzlers and the combos and the chocolate milk and the giant double, triple gulps and the beef jerky and everything that was in there. And then whoosh, he was gone. So I want you to put yourself in this seat and I want you to look, look through the glass of that 7-Eleven. And I want you to... Um, I want you to ask yourself, what is it that distracts you? Are you distracted by a modern mind? Let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, modern thought tells us that we are smarter than anyone in ancient history. Um, it tells us that our brains are bigger. Even though, if you're a true evolutionist, you believe that we are a speck, that, that intelligent human thought is a speck, that our brains have not changed in, since the first thought was recorded to now, our brains are, are in, in the evolutionary timeline exactly the same. So in other words, they were just as smart as you are. And these ancients were the ones who discovered all these laws and rules and phenomena in the universe. Most of those ancients, theists by the way, who pursued this truth in order to discover more about their designer. Okay, uh, They created your ability to doubt by their discovery of God and his created universe. So I just, and I'm telling you this not to, to look down, but to say this is how I've worked through this myself as a modernist. Uh, so here's the deal. There are sort of two options. There are two points of view. There is the, there is the, the point of view that is, that is ancient, and that is that there's a God and he created all things. Um, that when we look around at the universe, it exhibits evidence of a designer. Okay? There, the, first of all, there's stuff. And there's not just stuff, it's stuff that's organized. It's, it, it demonstrates design and creativity and beauty. And that stuff is organized into people who are intelligent, who have life, who, who can think, who can conceive of things like God. So our view is that that evidence gives pretty indi clear indication that if something is eternal, it's, it's, a, it's a divine, eternal mind, a being, a personal being. That seems to be logical. That seems to make sense. Seems to be empirically verifiable. And then there's the other view, the other prevailing view, and it kind of goes like this. When you boil it all down, uh, everything was created by fairy god nothing. Nothing. Either stuff was eternal and eventually it figured out how to organize itself, which breaks every principle of physics that I know. It organized itself into you and me to think about these things that don't exist. So my question to you is, which takes more faith to believe? So don't let that distract you. Don't give up on your pursuit of the truth and don't fear it, but don't let that distract you. The modern mind that has put all the universe in a little physical box um, has some, some problems to solve. A corollary to that is this. Are you, a Christian theist, ashamed 
of talking about supernatural things because of your modern mind? Are you embarrassed at the thought of talking to a friend about a God who is invisible, about a man, Jesus, who was God himself, who did miracles? Are you ashamed to do that? Well, I would put that same test to you. Ask yourself the question. Does it take more faith to believe that God created everything or that nothing created everything? And if there's a God, He has reign and control over the physical universe, yes? Don't be distracted by a modern mind. Are you distracted by the pursuit of self? We talked about this before. There is no self apart from God. Your self is a derivative of Him. He provides your essence. So when you chase after self in the form of all the things you think will fulfill you, you chase after an illusion. And that's all that stuff that tells you if you can dream it, you can do it, and it's all about you and you know, and all that kind of stuff. Pursue God. Don't pursue your dreams. Pursue His dreams that He's... He's laid out for you. And I want to leave you finally with that hope that comes from, we play this game in our community group sometimes. We call it pile on. And the way it works is every, on a Monday, I put out the first personal worship question and then everybody piles on in their emails. And uh, then every day I put out the next question and so everybody then piles on with their comments. I've got some amazing, insightful comments, but I want to leave you with a quote with one of these statements that I think summarizes everything we're talking about today beautifully Uh, This was also the person that talked about yourself being derived from God. I want to leave you with this. God lovingly, patiently, and gracefully understands our hearts and knows that we are not able to will into existence by sheer discipline and obedience a new heart and self. We need a new and radical experience that calls us in and not just bends our hearts, but melts them down and pours them into a new form. That is Jesus. That's what Jesus, your Redeemer, has done if you've trusted in Him. And if you haven't, come to Him. Take up your cross. Exchange the way of death for the way of life. And if you have done that, live as though you have and ruthlessly eliminate the distractions from your life. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, I get so caught up in the day-to-day. You tell me that worrying is a symptom of a lack of trust. And that means I don't trust you a lot because I worry. I get distracted by life and by the world's way of doing things. And yet Jesus died even for that, Lord. He took up his cross and even that was nailed on it. Even my distractions, even my insecurities, even my thick-headedness was nailed to that cross with Christ. And with my brothers and sisters, we rest in that today, but we ask, Lord, that from that place, you would empower us to take up our crosses, to ruthlessly eliminate the distractions, to forge in ourselves that state of being that is humble and loving, to take on a commitment to purity and to redemptive activity, and to be willing to set ourselves aside, to build your kingdom out of gratitude. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.